0: Hello. Good to be here with you. I like the Mr. Rogers theme song. That's nice. Caleb said I I said that I didn't like Mr. Rogers, but I just said I didn't like Lady Elaine Fairchild. Do you remember her, the puppet? She was annoying, but I love Mr. Rogers. He's awesome. (laughs) He's really cool. Um, I wasn't sure if you guys had a dress code for pastors, you know, so just in case I brought this flannel, just in case I'm offending anyone with no flannel, so, (laughs) but it seems like it'd be hot, and it's pink, so it's not quite as, like, authentic feeling as Carrie Rogers is, but I'll try to make you feel at home even just in what I'm wearing, but Um, I want to start by telling you a little story, and um, I'm telling this first because it's sort of a testimony, like, of something that's happened in our family that's kind of, kind of cool, and also, I'm telling it because I hope that it'll make some connections for you with Luke 10 when we jump into that scripture. So, so I'm going to start by telling you a little bit about um, my mom's great aunt. Her name is Marguerite. Um, she grew up a missionary kid on the Navajo reservation, and she... Um, she mostly ministered in, or taught school, I think she taught second grade in Ripon, California for most of her life, like 30 years. And my mom loved her, just adored Aunt Margie. Uh, she loved to read and tell stories to kids, and she was very kind and warm. And since she never had her own kids, my mom like, stuck real close to her and really, really like, loved her. And she made at least, my mom made at least one trip out to California per year to go visit her, because she didn't have kids to take care of her. And even when it was kind of hard, she always made that trip and made the sacrifice to go out there. She wrote letters to her all the time. She called her at least once a week. And she did that until she died about last year, sometime in the spring. And Aunt Margie had felt so close to my mom that she actually told her at one point that she was gonna put her in his, in her will. And she was gonna will her her little tiny two-bedroom house that she had in Ripon, California. And um, my mom thought that was great. She, was, she thought it was cool, but she didn't give it a lot of thought, you know, for many years after that. And that's just how my mom is. She's not real big into money and possessions and stuff like that. She doesn't put her hope in them. What she does care about is helping people. My mom has always been this sort of generous, she'll just give away anything she has to people to help them kind of person. And in fact, she chose to live that way instead of even saving for retirement or doing a lot of investing or um, keeping up money for herself. So anyway, she didn't give it much thought for 15 to 20 years. But in the meantime, there were other people that did give Aunt Margie's house a lot of thought. Um, There was a neighbor next door who really, for some reason, wanted that little house. And so she went over, she snuck over one day and she gave Margie a, a little paper to sign that she had written on there. I give my house to, put her name right there, and, and had Aunt Margie sign it. And she thought, well, she, you know, she's in her 90s, she's probably going to just sign it. Well, Aunt Margie scratched out give and uh, wrote sell, and she didn't, she didn't fall for it. And then the caretaker who was um, taking care of Aunt Margie for a while brought her to her lawyer and said, you know, it's really time to change your will I live closer to you, don't you want to uh, give the house to me? So she brought her to the lawyer, had Aunt Margie walk in the office, Aunt Margie walked back out, and I think she assumed it was a done deal. But apparently Aunt Margie outsmarted her as well, because when she did pass away, we found out that she had indeed left the house to my mom as the beneficiary of that. So we both thought it was, that was cool, that was um, probably the biggest thing that Aunt Margie owned, that she left to her, but actually we found out from the guy that was uh, the executor that that was just chump change compared to what Aunt Margie, this little school teacher, had had in investments. So um, these investments were worth over a million dollars that she'd left to Rehoboth school and all these missions all over the place. And this lady had, who had definitely not let her left hand know what her right hand was doing as far as money, nobody ever knew she had it, had left a lot of money to a lot of people. So it was really cool. Um, The testimony part of that is that my mom, who had not saved for retirement, um, who had sacrificed her own house when she moved here with us and and sacrificed at a great loss. So she was gonna have to rent for the rest of her life. She suddenly found herself gifted by God with this amazing retirement provision for her. Um, Because houses in California, even tiny little houses are worth quite a lot of money. So she decided to use that money in the best way she could by investing it in a house where she wouldn't have to pay a rent for the rest of her life. And uh, since they were getting older, she's 78, my stepdad is 84, um, and we'd been talking for years about finding a way to, uh, to live with them or have them live with us somehow. She decided to take half of whatever amount of money that was and put it in on a house with us, Instead of them moving again in a few years when they got older, they could just kind of grow old with us. So when Mike and I considered what it would take for them to move in with us, we'd always figured we'd have to really downsize into some little house in a not very good neighborhood and just to get enough space to have us all together. But now we were in this place where they were putting in money too, where we could buy a house that fit all of us, served all our needs, and was actually a beautiful, great house, better than we would have ever imagined or asked for. Um, So this house to us, when we are in it, feels like we can feel the love and generosity of God being poured into our lives. And my mom feels the same way. She looks out over this beautiful garden and this little pond and just thinks, this is just the generosity and love of God. I didn't earn it. (laughs) It wasn't mine. And God just gave it to me. So to me, that's a beautiful just way that God has provided. And the coolest part of this is that my mom, as she puts half this money into this house, um, when she passes away, we're gonna sell that and that money will be an inheritance for her children, which she never thought she'd have. Um, So no one could have done that for my mom, but God. And she simply trusted God with her life and did what she felt like was obedience in the moment. And God blessed her in this way by giving her an inheritance. So anyway, that was a long story and a very long intro, but I wanted to give you that picture of inheritance in your minds because when we jump into the first few words of the text, you're going to see it come up there. So, So let's pray a minute before we jump in. Lord God, I thank you so much for your word, which speaks to us at such a deep level. Lord, it's cool to me every time that um, these words that, that meant something back in the day when they were written, they still mean something to us because, Lord, it, it transcends culture and it just hits our heart. And this morning, Lord, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that your grace would hit our hearts in a way that we understand you better, know you and ourselves better, and, uh, and Lord, that we can serve you with more joy and more grace than ever before. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles, you can jump into Luke 10, starting at verse 25. It's a really familiar text. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, But we're going to jump in at verse 25 just right before Jesus starts telling the story. In verse 25, it says, One day an expert in the law stood up to test him. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So, If you think about what he's asking here, there's a flaw in the question, right? You don't do anything to inherit something. It's something that's given to you. We just talked about inheritance and how that happens to people, right? It's a gift that's based solely on a relationship that you have with someone. It's not at all something that you earn. In fact, um, in the story I just told, there were some people that tried to do something to inherit that house And they were not going about it right, right? They had wrong motives and it actually didn't even come about for them. So you don't do something um, to inherit something. An inheritance is given only if the owner of uh, of the thing that's being given loves you and just wants to impart something to you. So that's what an inheritance is. But this law expert asked this question. And when he does, you get kind of a glimpse into his soul, you know, into maybe his motives or his understanding of what, what uh, God is, who God is, and what eternal life is all about. He seems to think that um, you have to do something to inherit eternal life. And so I love how Jesus tries to help him see this by allowing him to kind of bring his line of thinking to its logical conclusion, right? Jesus tells him, well, he asks him, what is written in the law? He already knows. He's a very smart guy. He's a law expert. So Jesus says, how do you read that? He has him read it out loud. And uh, he answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So the law tells him what it would take to earn uh, his inheritance with God, to earn eternal life. He would have to live this out perfectly he would have to love God with all his heart, all his mind, all his strength, all his soul, right? And he'd have to love his neighbor as himself. So even if he thought he'd loved God like that, he'd have that kind of, he'd have to prove it by loving his neighbor. So it's a pretty big deal. Hearing hearing himself say those words out loud, I imagine that law expert felt pretty nervous, insecure, a little bit shaken, right? Um, So he did what was natural. When you're feeling a little convicted about something, he started to justify himself. He had to justify himself um, because obeying the law had been the main focus of his life for uh, probably his entire adult life. And doing that well was the only way he could be assured that he was going to earn salvation. So uh, if he was failing at that, his whole foundation was crumbling. And to avoid that personal and spiritual crisis that he felt in those moments, he had to try to convince himself that somehow what he was doing was enough. It was good enough. So what he did was he tried to narrow the playing field, right? Of what does neighbor mean though? Let's make that smaller. Maybe that will mean that I'm, I, I can be successful at it. It says in verse 29, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who?" is my neighbor. Um, A tight definition of neighbor kind of narrows the playing field for him there. And it made him feel like maybe he was a righteous enough person, that he was doing enough somehow to earn this inheritance. And it gave him an an excuse for the fact that there were um, lots of people in this world that he didn't really particularly care for or that he wanted nothing to do with at all. Um, because they didn't have their act together, you know, they weren't quite what he was, what he liked to be around. It justified his disappointment and his um, disassociation with people who didn't think they that that didn't believe correctly like he did. This narrow definition of neighbor um, probably helped him to justify the fact that the Samaritans, who he kind of disassociated with. Uh, were, were, um, you know, he could do that because they they didn't believe right and they didn't do things correctly. So this might have helped him also justify the sense of superiority and judgment that he felt towards them and all others that had it wrong in the doctrine and worship department. Right? It bolstered his religious pride to the point where he felt truly justified by all the efforts that he'd made to do what was good. This kind of self-righteousness kept him propped up high enough that he didn't come to Jesus with an attitude of trying to learn from Jesus. He came with an attitude of trying to test Jesus to see, you know, does he know as much as I do, is he as as smart as me? And he probably reasoned that if they would just follow the law better like, like him, if he saw people like Samaritans, if they would just do better, or somebody that was hard up, if you just followed the law better like me, then God would bless them more. So, you know, it's not really my responsibility. But the truth was that this law expert's heart was so full of ugliness and pride that he'd never had to face before because he was, he was doing good by human standards, but he never really saw the junk in his heart. But when Jesus made him look into the perfect law of God like this, he made him say it out loud. Um, he started to feel shaken and insecure, like he needed to justify himself. And I don't know if you can relate to this. I know I can. When I think about the law of God, the perfect law of God to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, there is not a day in my life where I feel like I've done that well. Um, I'm sure most of us, if we're honest, feel the same way about that. We feel kind of a combo of shame and hopelessness um, when we think about that. Like, ooh, haven't really done that. I don't know if I ever really can do that. It seems so hard. And it's not a good feeling when you feel that way. No one ever wants to feel like they've failed, right? Especially when you're trying really hard to serve God. So sometimes, without even realizing it, we do exactly what the law expert did we start to justify ourselves by narrowing the playing field a little bit on who is my neighbor. If we can include only the people that we're pretty good at loving already, then maybe we can succeed at it. Uh, If we can rule out people that that believe differently or make us uncomfortable with their lifestyles, then we can feel kind of good about ourselves. And if we can push away any sense of responsibility for people outside of that scope of our, our neighbor that we see, then we don't have to feel bad for their suffering either. It's this mindset that causes us as Christians sometimes to build little Christian kingdoms of comfort where we only talk to the people we know and like, the ones we feel we can be successful at loving. And this is a huge issue in churches. I really believe it is. I think it's part of the reasons that churches get clicky, you know, um, they they fear letting anyone else in because they don't want to ruin the tight, safe, little sweet fellowship that they have when they get together. It feels so good and they can love everybody and it's easy. And I think it's the cause of this age-old Christian phenomena, right? That the longer somebody's a Christian, the less friends they have that are not Christian, the less they talk to non-Christians. Um, if we can find a group that we're good at loving and just stick around them only, then we can make love our neighbor a little bit easier for ourselves. This is the subtle and gradual shift in attitude that, takes, um, that causes a church plant to become eventually like a church clique where new people don't feel comfortable anymore. I know we've been fighting this shift a lot at Alive in Jenison for years. Even though we have great intentions right, of staying missional and thinking about the community and all of that, part of Jenison culture is to find your people and stay close and not really invite a lot of other people in. So people do that very naturally. It's just part of their culture. But as we can see in this story, it's not just part of Jenison culture or Hudsonville culture or Granville. It's this universal problem. It's part of human nature to do that. Um, People have been keeping their circles very small ever since there were people and ever since there were circles, just forever. And uh, it's part of our human nature. It can easily happen to any of us at any time that we feel this way because it's kind of a natural slide into that. Even the most well-intentioned missional church plant alive in Granville, any of us um, can slide into that. So we need to be mindful and notice that in ourselves when we see it. Uh, if we start to feel like somebody coming into our life that we don't know is an intrusion, or someone walking into the building is uh, is someone that ah oh, shoot, I don't want to talk to them. I have my people I want to talk to. Then you can see yourself you can see yourself sliding into it. I've been there many times, and I know <laughs> how I how I can be. Um, because God's command to love our neighbor, though to love our neighbor as we love ourselves doesn't just apply to the people that are easy to be be around, the fun people, the people we know. His definition of neighbor is very expansive and very inclusive. Uh, We're gonna go on to read the rest of the story and you'll see. Here's the story he tells the law expert in verse 30. Jesus took up this question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the same road, but when you saw him, he passed by on the other side. So too, when the Levite came to that spot and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now the priest and the Levite are supposed to represent, we're supposed to connect with them because they're supposed to represent the best Christians, the best religious type of people. And um, they're the ones that pursue faithfulness and diligently try to serve God. And, and just like many of us, we've, we've been trying to walk with God and serve God. So it's really not hard for us to put ourselves in these guys' shoes. In fact, um, maybe if you do that right now, think about that. Put yourself in their shoes. You can probably imagine all sorts of reasons why they would have walked right by that Samaritan, right? Can some of you... Tell me some reasons that you think they might have walked by. Any thoughts? He was dirty. dirty. Yeah. He probably was. Bloody and dirty and gross. Who would want to touch that, right? Or get involved. Anyone else? What was that? They were in a hurry. They were in a hurry. There's always those time constraints, right? Is like he probably had a busy lifestyle and something he was getting to down that road. So that's good. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah, I'm sure. Because who was waiting around the bend, right? If this guy got jumped, there could have been somebody else around him. So yeah, he could have definitely been scared for his own safety. All of those things are really, those are really good, insightful answers. Now, take all those things and think about your own life. And think about maybe a time that you've failed to reach out to someone. Or you saw someone suffering and you kind of chose to not get involved. Maybe a coworker, a relative, or just somebody you didn't know. And um, and in that situation, what was your reason? You don't have to say it out loud. You can just think about it. Uh, maybe like a lot of us, you, you've let your life become so busy. I think like you said, busyness, that you have a thing to get to and a place to go all the time. You know, you've got soccer practice and school and work and everything just competing in your life for your time. And you don't have the time, the margin in your life for somebody that's um, outside of your plan, you know, it gets that way. Or maybe you felt uncomfortable getting involved because you felt like it wasn't really your business, you know, and you have that sense of, oh, I don't know if they really need, want me to get involved. Um, there's lots of reasons, all the reasons you guys listed and more, but I think it's okay to admit that loving your neighbor as yourself is not our, It's not your natural inclination. It's not always easy to do. We all struggle with either selfishness or pride or fear in different ways. That fearful part of our sinful nature that is too afraid maybe to get involved. And even those of us who are law experts, you know, it's okay. You might be an expert in what you know you should do, but it doesn't mean that you're an expert in actually doing it. So it comes, it, it comes naturally to everyone to uh, pull away from people instead of to go towards them. And actually the best thing we can do is admit that and just say, okay, yep, we fail in that. It is hard. We're shy or we're, you know, preoccupied or whatever it is. Sometimes we, we do not love our neighbor as ourselves. And when we, we get to that place where we can just admit that, Uh, We can stop asking then, what do I do to inherit eternal life, like that law expert, and we can just answer the right, we can ask the right question, which is, who can save me, right? Who can deliver me from this, like, tendency to always, you know, do what I want to do? And this is what the Apostle Paul did in Romans 7. I don't know if you guys remember that passage, but he has this long wrestling match where he says things like, um, his sinful nature has he couldn't do what he wanted to do, but he did do what he didn't want to do. And it's a big, long, wordy passage, but it's all about how he's wrestling with his own sinful nature and saying, ah, I feel like I just can't do this. Um, And at one point in his life, you know, he was an expert too. He was a law expert, asking daily what he could do to inherit eternal life. But after this revelation of the holiness of Christ, and this law of God, which was just love, he looked at himself and he said, who can rescue me from this body of sin and death? You know, I, I have this sinful tendency to do my own thing and who can, who can help me? Who can justify me since I can't justify myself? And because he wrestled with his own failure like that of loving God and loving his neighbor, he was now able to grab hold of the one who could rescue him from sin and death. Do you remember the next line of, in that Romans 7 passage, the answer to his question? He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is our answer as well to that. We can't do anything to inherit. We always fall short, but that's okay because you don't earn an inheritance, right? You don't do anything to obtain it. It's a complete gift from God. It's a gift it comes from God because God considers you his child, and he loves you, and he gives it to you. In Romans 8, it says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And in Romans 9, he says, so then it does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens those who he wants to harden. So he has had mercy on us, all of us in this room. And, uh, He's made us children by this great compassion and love. Like some of the songs we were singing this morning, I just thought were so powerful and beautiful. He has just had mercy on us. That's how we've received whatever we have. And the good Samaritan in this story represents that mercy of Christ and what Christ did for us. If if you read in verse 33, put Christ in there as the Samaritan, and let's read it together. But when a Samaritan on his journey came upon him, He looked at him and he had compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds with this empathy that he had from his own sense of recovery, right? He poured on oil and wine that he received from the Holy Spirit. My words, not the text words. Then he put them on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Take care of him, he said, and on my return I will repay you for any additional expense. So Jesus did that for us. He found us when we were broken in the brokenness of our sinful nature, unable to do for ourselves, right? He took us when we were helpless to heal ourselves and wounded and on our way to spiritual death, if we went in that direction, he noticed us, he he had compassion on us. And then out of his love and generosity, he provided everything we need for healing and for uh, recovery, and for growth, and for life and godliness, like the Bible says. He saw us when we were strangers, and he treated us like sons and daughters. And I think believing that and owning that in our hearts makes such a big difference. Loving us with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind, he just poured out all that love on us. And and like that song said, he chased us down. He found us. He grabbed hold of our lives. If you look at the passage right before this story, you notice that Jesus was, was just then rejoicing at this very like marvel of God, that he had given this great gift to people who were so undeserving. He had just watched the disciples go out. He would sent them out, and by the Holy Spirit, they're casting out demons and healing the sick and all these things. And Jesus saw them coming back, and he looked at them, and he, he just rejoiced. He said, God had given his own spirit to these people. None of them earned it. And all of a sudden, there they are running around um, doing these wonderful things of God, He rejoiced to see this. Um, And meanwhile, the learned people, the law experts, weren't getting it because they were trying so hard to do something to inherit eternal life. This is what he said. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Um, Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father, "'No one knows the Son except for the Father, "'and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, "'and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him.'" So God chooses to reveal himself to people. Um, And these people that had received from him, they knew the grace of God, they knew they'd been given a gift, and it caused them to just be compelled to run out and start to do these things for other people. They were caring and preaching the gospel and bringing healing. And, and um, they were setting people free from bondage that they had in their lives. It wasn't forced. It was just this natural outpouring of the fact that they had just received the grace of Jesus Christ. And uh, I believe that the only way that religious people can stay passionate about loving God and loving others is to keep that fresh awareness of what Christ has done for them. Uh, that mercy and grace, to understand that and know that in your life is the only way really to stay compassionate and to keep pushing the envelope of welcoming people into your life. I know that's true for me. I know when I lose sight of God's mercy and grace for me, that's when I stop extending that to other people as much. I have to stay close to his mercy. A revelation of God's grace is what changes someone from a law expert to a lover of God. And uh, there's a guy at Alive in Jenison named High School. Some of you know him. Some of you are even related to him. Um, if, you're, if you're around him long enough, you hear his testimony at some point and um, how he went to church his whole life, right? Just, but always had a little bit of doubts in his mind if he'd really earned, you know, done done enough to earn God's favor or whatever. And then one day when he was 65, he said the Lord just revealed his grace and mercy to him. And ever since then, you know, he's known for sure the gift that God has given him. And when he talks to people, this testimony comes out naturally. You know, we can hardly contain the tears when he talks about God's grace and mercy in his life. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, and Steve Clisterhouse who's here with me today, he uh, also goes to Alive in Jenison. And he has a testimony kind of like that. And he was willing to actually come along this morning and share with you. So I'm going to give him a chance, just a few minutes to... Um, to do that, Steve is awesome. You can't be around him too long without hearing his testimony, which is cool. Where's the microphone for him? Behind me? Oh, oh, right here. Okay. So go ahead, Steve. Thanks. Hey, uh, I'm not gonna. Do you
1: wanna use I wanna here, no, I'll do this. I like to. St- I like to stay connected to that. Um, but yeah, hi. My name is Steve Klosterhouse, um, and. Uh, Thank you for allowing me to come this morning and share a little bit about who I am, or more so who I was, and now who God is um, changing me into being. Um, So this is just a very um, short, small glimpse of how God has worked in my heart and um, how merciful and gracious he's been to me. And um, so I just ask that, um, to him, all the glory go to him. So a piece of my history um, might be helpful because it might connect with some of you all. And uh, that is, um, I was raised in a Christian home and uh, I went to Christian schools. Um, in fact, well, I was baptized at Ridgewood Christian Reformed Church. And I went to Jenison Christian School, I went to Hudsonville Christian School, I went to Unity Christian School, I went to Kelvin College, and so you're starting to get the picture right. Um, So uh, um, along with that, I met my wife at Unity Christian, and we decided to send our kids to um, Christian school. So um, lots of Christian in that. Um, the only problem was uh, the fact that um, Christ was in those places. I just wasn't seeing him, and he wasn't in my heart. So um, it was kind of a heart thing. You know, I was doing all the right things, um, but I wasn't seeing Jesus in any of it. Um, in fact, I was all about building my own kingdom and um, so if, if you knew me, um, then you would say, oh, he's a nice guy. You know, he's a hard worker, um, good Christian. Um, but um, I realized that all that doing uh, didn't make me a Christian um, it's only one person who can do that. Um, So along with having that mask on that uh, I wanted all my friends, family, acquaintances to see, um, what was really going on on the inside um, was much more ugly than that. Um, So a little bit about that is um, I was anxious, Um, I've been anxious most of my life, world-class worrier. I was discontent, um, impatient, irritable, judgmental, prideful, and selfish. And that was just the start of it. Um, Again, on the outside, if you knew me, you wouldn't see that, except if I was behind you in traffic you know, then you might see it. Um, The judgmental part showed itself out, and I was absolutely addicted to talk radio. Um, I would sit in my driveway after driving home from work, and I couldn't shut it off. And um, it was not a good thing. So I'm in a bad place, but I don't even know it because I'm doing all the right things. I'm going to church twice on Sunday, sending my kids to the Christian school, right? I'm good, but I just didn't feel good. But anyway, so it was a lot of doing. But then God had a change planned for me. And again, I have to remind myself and y'all that all of that stuff I was doing is not bad of itself. I just wasn't seeing Jesus in it, Right? I was only seeing what I thought I needed to look like uh, to be that person I was expected to be. Um, So anyway, God started working. Let me get back to that. I lost my notes place, but he started working at a place, a church in Jenison, right? Alive in Jenison started the transformation. And I'm so excited to share that with you. My kids went there and... uh, Their friend, Eric Billen, was the worship leader. And uh, we grew up with the Billens and this. And so they're like, you got to go up, come here, Eric. And so I did. I was like, this is awesome. This guy is amazing. And so we were like, yeah, yeah, listening. Well, what also came along with it was a really basic gospel saved by grace and Jesus alone, not all the other stuff that I thought I had to be doing, but was failing at. You know what I mean? It's, it was preached every week, basic gospel. And I'm just, started the transformation. My middle son, I don't, we don't have all day, I'm gonna keep moving. So my middle son then invited me to Guatemala and uh, to missions trip, never been on one before. And I went to save the lost, but God had a plan to save the lost. So I saw miracles there, I was a part of it, and God was revealing himself. It's so cool, right? But got back, is slipping back, slipping back. But then one of the guys I met there, he was like, hey, would you like to come and join a Bible study at the church you just left in Genes- or Hudsonville? And I was like, "Mm, are you kidding? Um, No. (laughs) But yeah, I did. And so I joined this Bible study with these guys in the church. I had just left a couple years before. And um, God was there. And uh, every man a warrior. If you've never heard of it, this study is about um, meditating on God's word every day with accountability to other men. Not, not only meditating on God's word, but memorizing God's word. I'm like 50 then. It was hard, but I did it. And so, um, it, and then praying, right? All this church stuff, I couldn't pray. But in every man a warrior, meditated on God's word, memorized God's word, and prayed with other men. And God, God. He, he just grabbed my heart, right? Um, so I'm not sure exactly where I am in this, but you get the picture. Um, he pursued me um, at 50. I'm 55 now. And uh, he continues to show his amazing grace. Like two songs are now my new theme songs that we sang this morning, right? But amazing grace saved a wretch like me I once was lost. He found me in Guatemala. I was blind as a bat. I'm starting to see. It's so awesome. And so this doesn't matter because again, all the glory and the grace goes to the Heidelberg Catechism said to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.
0: Steve. I love Steve's testimony so much because it's not about how you look and come across and all the things you manage to do to look like a good Christian. It's about your heart, right? And being honest with your heart. And I just think that's so beautiful when, that Steve's willing to share his heart and just the transformation that, um, that God made in it. Um, You know, we all want to be less like the priest and the Levite and more like the Good Samaritan, right? That's the obvious point of the story. And the only way to do that, I really think, is by continually being aware of the mercy of God in your own life and receiving it. And that's really not that hard. Um, We just have to admit that we're broken and, uh, and that we're helpless to fix ourselves and then trust him. To rescue us and heal us and bring us under his wing. And every time we allow our uh, allow Christ to touch our wounds and heal us, it helps us to be then less repulsed by other people's wounds and problems and issues, right? Because we know that healing power of Christ and we're full wanting to extend that to other people and we we don't look at people in hopelessness so much anymore when we have the hope in us of what Christ has just done in our own lives and knowing that our judgments have been canceled against us I don't know about you but when you're when you're a religious Christian and you're very well aware of all the things that you could be judged for and then the judgment is canceled by Jesus Christ that helps you to cancel your judgments towards other people as well It helps you to be more of that the good Samaritan when you receive from Jesus Christ. Um, So this story was not a rebuke to the law expert. Jesus loved him. He had said all this stuff to help him understand that eternal life is about mercy. And he closed with this last question, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who showed him mercy, replied the expert in the law. He got to that place, he understood it. Then Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Life in God is all about mercy. If we get away from that truth in our own lives, we lose the ability to love. It's so easy to get away from the truth that God has rescued us freely and start relying on what we can do, like the law experts. But when we go that direction, we're just burdened and disappointed, vacillating between feeling great about ourselves and feeling deeply ashamed at our failures and up and down. And God wants to get us off that roller coaster. He wants us to let down the guard of our spiritual pride and just admit that we need him to rescue us all the time, um, that we need his mercy. And then we can say with Paul, who can rescue us from this body of sin and death? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus as a free gift. Uh, So we're going to come before God right now and trust in his mercy again as we close in prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, we come before you knowing that you are a God of compassion and mercy. Jesus, when you stepped down into our world and saw us and grabbed hold of us when we were laying by the side of the road in our sin and in our brokenness, Lord, you, you transformed us. Lord, you brought us from death to life and we just want to recognize that right now in these moments. Lord, I pray that you would um, speak to our hearts again and help us to receive your mercy, your healing, your rescue. Lord, that we can become those agents of rescue like the disciples who went out and just were, were, um, were healing the sick and talking to people and preaching the gospel. Lord, let us have that kind of hungry heart just to love others and um, be, uh, let us be filled with that gift freely giving kind of capacity, Lord. Keep us, Lord, from becoming too self-centered or too, uh, too apathetic about others and help us, Lord, to continue to grow in your love. I pray this blessing on each one that's in this room as they're so important and so critical, Lord, to rescuing and helping the people of Granville. We thank you, Lord, for this responsibility and this grace that you've given us all in one package. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. Um, and we give you we give you um, thanks and praise, Jesus. Amen.